Last week, we began a series in the book of Esther. We talked about what life is like in a kingdom without God. First of all, we talked about how it's not all that bad. It's rich and large and powerful and beautiful and entertaining, and yet it's not all good. It's sexist, incompetent, decadent, and unjust. All of those adjectives, both the good and the bad, describe the Persian kingdom under which Esther lives. That's what life is like in a kingdom without God. Now, for Christians, this experience is, to some extent, universal. Wherever and whenever Christians live, they have some difference from the society around them. Whether you're an African Christian living in the 4th century, or an Italian Christian living in the 12th, or a Russian Christian living in the 20th, the kingdom or society or culture in which you live will not perfectly resemble or reflect the kingdom of God. In other words, you're going to live in exile. You're going to have a worldly home and yet not feel at home in the world. You're going to have citizenship in heaven and know you are not there yet. You're going to have both feet planted in this world and yet your mind will wonder, why do I wish I was somewhere else? That's what it's like to live in exile, to be strange in a so-called normal world. Now, the big question for us as Christians is, what is God up to when we're in exile? And today, we see one answer to that question. The book of Esther in chapter 2 reads, Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So last week, we talked about how King Xerxes was having a six-month feast followed by another week-long feast, and he was very drunk at both of those. And so he orders his queen to come and present herself uh, to all of the nobility. Now, he tells her to wear her royal crown, and a lot of early interpreters believe that he was suggesting that she only wear her crown. And, with no surprises at all, she is not interested in this idea. She, quote-unquote, disobeys King Xerxes. And so he deposes her. He gets rid of her as queen, and apparently sometime later, his anger goes away. And so his personal attendants the sycophants who work for him, propose this idea to King Xerxes. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every single province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice shockingly appeals to King Xerxes, and he follows it. Now, remember last week we talked about how this story is both tragedy and comedy. Now, the tragedy is the king gets rid of his wife because she refuses to be paraded around like a piece of meat. And now he's 
continuing this project of, of objectification by making teenage girls throughout the Persian Empire participate in this vulgar competition to see who pleases him the most. That's the tragedy. The comedy is we are seeing the incompetence of this kingdom in its great glory. This king never thinks of his own ideas. Never once in this entire story will the king do something of his own accord. He only takes the advice of the people around him. This is the same guy who could not abide by Queen Vashti, who disobeyed him, and yet he is constantly asking for advice, or orders, you might say, for him to follow. Because he's not that great of a king. He's incompetent. He cannot carry out his own thoughts. He does the bidding and thoughts of others. That's the comedy. And we're reintroduced to this idea over and over again. This story is both tragic and comedic. Now, for the first time in two chapters in this book, which is in the Hebrew Bible, which tells the stories of God and his people, Israel, we hear about a Jew. We're told that there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now Esther, along with many other young women, were taken to the king's palace. Now Esther is Mordecai's cousin or relative whom he adopted because she was an orphan. And not knowing her ethnicity, not knowing her background, she joins with all of the other uh, young women in this competition. Now, of course, she does not do this of her own accord. She is taken, I think a better word would be kidnapped. She is taken to the king's palace and entrusted to the man in charge of the harem. She pleased the king and won his favor. Again, the tragedy of this story continues. An orphan girl is taken away from her only family and she is given to this king and the king is the one who objectified his last wife is now on the hunt for a virgin to stimulate him the most and to rub salt in the wound esther cannot reveal her, her nationality her cousin mordecai wisely warns her to hide her identity he knows very well the worldwide hatred of his people. And so he does not trust the whims of a Persian king to accept his cousin Esther as a Jewish woman. The tragedy unfolds. She goes through a year's worth of beauty treatments to bring her up to the very high standards of Xerxes. And we find out later in this chapter that Esther wins the favor of everyone who sees her. And so King Xerxes sets a royal crown on her head, the same crown that Queen Vashti refused to wear, and Esther is made queen. And because King Xerxes doesn't know how to do anything else, he gives a huge banquet, a great banquet, the, the banquet of Esther for all of his nobles and officials. And he proclaims a holiday to celebrate Esther as queen. And this is the whole story. 
in chapter 2. What is God up to? What could he possibly be doing? This story may seem very underwhelming to you, and sometimes it seems very underwhelming to me. I don't see God at first anywhere in this story. All I see is a pig who is a king take advantage of his power. I see an orphan girl get kidnapped. I, get a lot, I see a lot of women taken advantage of doesn't seem like God is up to anything. She is now married to this drunken oaf of a king. And yet, even in this story, even in this very tragic story, I think there is light in the darkness because this story is not the first time we hear about the elevation of a person of God in the halls of power. Some of you may know the story of Joseph. From the book of Genesis, he is one of 12 brothers, and he's the favorite of his father, but hated by his siblings. They sell him into slavery in Egypt, and he ends up in the dungeon of Pharaoh with no hopes left because he is unjustly convicted of crimes he never committed. And yet, with perfect timing, Pharaoh has dreams he needs to be interpreted, and it just so happens that Joseph... The man in his dungeon knows how to interpret dreams. So very thankful for his help, Pharaoh appoints Joseph, not only gets him out of prison, but appoints him to be his right-hand man. A young Jewish man is elevated into the halls of power, and once he's there, Joseph helps Egypt and Israel survive a famine. Some of you may know the story of Moses. There was another Pharaoh, decades later, who hates the Jews. And he actually enacts a policy to systematically kill young Jewish boys. So Moses' mother and sister strategically place him in the Nile River so that Pharaoh's daughter would see him. And in her mercy and compassion, she adopts Moses and raises him in the house of Pharaoh. So in the very king's palace that instituted this terrible policy against Jewish boys, there is a Jewish boy being raised. And once he's there, he grows. And one day he brings the judgment of God upon Egyptian slavery. Before the time of Esther, there's a young Jewish boy named Daniel. He was carried off into exile and lived under the reign of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. The royal courts tried to make Daniel eat foods that were not kosher. The king himself tried to make Daniel bow down before a statue of the king, but due to his faith in God, he refuses both the food and the idolatry. And despite Nebuchadnezzar's attempts to kill Daniel, God protects him over and over again. Eventually, Daniel is seen as so wise and favored by God, he's promoted. He becomes a part of the royal court and elevated into the halls of power. And once he's there, he's able to help the cause of the Jews. And now we read about a young Jewish girl elevated into the halls of power. This story is not a coincidence. Our God is a God who exalts the humble. 
He reverses the fortunes of the unfortunate. He lifts up the lowly and he places them in halls of power and he puts them in positions of influence. Over and over again, God subverts the kingdoms of the world. God pushes to the top one of his people in the midst of oppressors. God gives them access to power they could not have imagined. He gives the voiceless a voice and the powerless some power. Now, he doesn't always protect these people. He doesn't always save them from all danger. We know that Jesus appears before Pilate with great wisdom and strength, and yet he is killed. His apostle Stephen appears before Jewish authorities, and he is killed. We see Paul appear before many Roman authorities, and he is executed as well. God does not always prevent the death of his favored ones, but God has this habit. He keeps doing it over and over and over in the story of Scripture. He brings up the oppressed into the halls of power and gives them Influence. He gives power to the powerless and voice to the voiceless and influence to the so-called unimportant. And you might think, well, how do we know this is God's work? I think it's because when Pharaoh had dreams, a man named Joseph, who could interpret dreams, just so happened to be in his dungeon. Right when Pharaoh, another Pharaoh, enslaves the Jews and tries to kill their boys, a Jewish boy named Moses just so happens to be adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Right when Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue of himself, he brings into his court a man who refuses to bow down to such statues. And right when Xerxes needs a woman to fill the vacancy for the queen, an exiled Jew named Esther wins the beauty competition. You are perfectly welcome to see these happenings as unlikely, which they are. But likelihood or probability has no bearing on the providence of God. What is impossible with man or woman is possible with God. And what is improbable to us is the providential care of our God. We also know this is the work of God because there are so many songs in Scripture about God doing this kind of thing. When Hannah celebrates the birth of her son Samuel, she says this, She who was barren has now borne seven children, and she who has had many sons now pines away. The Lord brings death, and he makes alive. He brings down to the grave, and he raises up. The Lord sends both poverty and wealth. God humbles and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. This is what our God does. He reverses the fortunes of the unfortunate. He lifts up those who are lowly. He liberates the oppressed. He puts the powerless in the halls of power. He does this because he will not abide by a kingdom that ignores him. Even at the height of this, of any kingdom's powers, God can subvert them at any time he wants. During Pharaoh's power, God put Joseph in charge. During Assyria's rule, God sends Jonah with a message of judgment. 
During Nebuchadnezzar's golden age, God sent Daniel. During Xerxes' reign, God is sending Esther. Even in the kingdoms that this world has known after scripture is written, God has no problems with sending in his agents to subvert evil. During the time of the Nazis, God sent Dietrich Bonhoeffer to resist them. During the era of Jim Crow, God sent Martin Luther King Jr. During the time of English slavery, God sent William Wilberforce. During the time of the church's decadence, God sent St. Francis of Assisi. During our days, these days, right now, God might be sending all sorts of men and women who will subvert evil in our midst. Because God will never let any kingdom of this world intimidate him. In fact, he teaches kingdoms to number their days. I mean, just ask the question, where, where is Assyria? Where is the kingdom of Babylon? Where is the kingdom of Persia? Where is the kingdom of Rome? Where are kings like Nebuchadnezzar and Xerxes and Caesar? They're gone. They're done. They're finished. They're dead. They are powerless. And the kingdom of God is doing just fine. Christ's kingdom has no end. It'll keep on going. So Esther's rise to power as queen is tragic at one level. She's a poor, orphan, teenage girl objectified by a Persian king. She is kidnapped from her only Jewish family, her cousin Mordecai. And if she reveals who she is, she could be tossed aside because her people are hated. And I'm sure that Esther, at many points in her life, would have chosen a very different life than the one she had. But without knowing it, Esther is being positioned for opportunities she cannot fathom. She will face dangers ahead that I'm sure she would have preferred to avoid. She will be burdened with a fearsome set of responsibilities. But now, in this story, there is a young Jewish girl where there was no Jewish girl before. There is an oppressed person who can speak to the king. There is a lowly woman who has the ear of a high and mighty emperor. In Hannah's song, she claimed that God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. God seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. God is seating Esther with princes even a king. God has her inherit a throne of honor. What is God up to? Well, he's elevating the lowly. He's lifting up this unknown Jewish girl to become queen of a vast kingdom. The question now is, what will she do with it? 